passion for God and compassion for our neighbor. Reaching our region and beyond with the life-changing message of Jesus Christ. This is Crosswinds Church. And now, here's Pastor Jordan Gowing. Bit of a confession. I don't know exactly what Crystal and I were thinking this past Christmas, um, but we decided to buy our kids five, four, five, four, and two. We decided to buy them toy lightsabers, uh, which um, I, I shouldn't say we actually. I'm the Star Wars fan, so uh, I'll just I'll just take ownership of that. Uh, and I've lost the the count of the number of times we've had to take those away uh, from the kids um, because here's how it, how it works. Uh, they'll they'll start by playing gently with one another, right? And then they'll just get caught up in the moments and, and exuberance and, and frankly, let's just be honest, uh, lack of hand-eye coordination. And all of a sudden, uh, one of them will go too far and, and hit a sibling uh, in the face or, or somewhere else. And uh, if you've ever questioned the existence of God, all you need to do is watch or look for this deep-seated need for justice that lives within a toddler when they've been wronged. And if they've been hit in the face with a lightsaber, then by golly, they will, of course, return the favor. And uh, not, not as another accident, but as a form of uh, retribution, justice that they take into their own hands. And as you can imagine, chaos just absolutely ensues uh, in that moment. And, and as I've been preparing for this morning's text, I just, I just keep coming, that image keeps coming to mind, this, this image of, of my kids fighting with one another, something that they think is innocent, and then all of a sudden it just escalates and, and, and gets out of control, leaves havoc, destruction, and hurt feelings, right? And in uh, this morning's text in 2 Timothy, Paul is he's talking about something that in, in verse 14, we see he, he talks about these quarrels. Literally, what he's referring to, the, the phrase could just be simply translated as word fights, He's talking about these word fights that are happening in the church in Ephesus and how they're just leaving destruction for that church. Words matter, don't they? Words can leave an incredible amount of damage. They can do damage to ourselves. They can do damage to other people as well. And over the past five or six years, I think that I've, I've just absolutely seen that, that here in the United States, we've absolutely lost our filter Social media especially seems to have emboldened us to be able to say whatever we want because all we have to do is, is press the share button. And then we share a meme and then all of a sudden we, we get to, to make this point and then if it offends someone, well, we just say, well, I just shared it and of course I didn't believe in everything that was said. And I, I think the church has a tendency to look more like the world than unlike the world in this moment and in this context. Last year, I, I saw um, a pastor friend transition into a new church role. And as he was transitioning into that, he saw that as an opportunity to post this tell-all of all of the things that had gone wrong, all of the ways that he had been wronged in his previous position. I've seen Christians that, that post things on, on social media that are downright satanic with how they refer to other people, the way they describe other people. I've seen, other pe I've seen people make themselves into martyrs when all they're really doing is just being a jerk with their words. In fact, I, I think that there are probably da greater dangers facing the church than, than our use of language and, and of the tongue, but I honestly can't think of one right now. 
Words matter, and words can do an incredible amount of damage. Words can be destructive. And just to be honest, I've seen this in my own life as well. I, I, in James chapter 3, James is talking about how we use our words to bless our God and Father and then curse those who are made in his image. And I can, man, I, I see that, that, that God has given me the gift of a voice. And I can use that to praise him, and I can also use that to destroy and to be destructive toward other people. This morning, we're working our way through 2 Timothy. 2 Timothy chapter 2, verses 14 through 19. In this passage, remember, Paul is he's facing the end of his life. And as he's nearing the end of his life, he, he's giving these instructions to Timothy on how to live out faithfulness to the gospel in the midst of hardship. A number of churches are abandoning Paul. They're, they're abandoning the gospel because of, of suffering. They're putting this distance between Paul because of suffering. And, and Paul is writing to Timothy. He says, I want you to be faithful. I want you to remain until the end. Even when suffering comes, even when hardship comes for your commitment to the gospel, I want you to faithfully endure in your life and in your ministry. And as he, he turns to this, uh, this topic of conflict and of contention. He gives us this word that is, that is really basic, and yet it's really, really hard for us to live out. That's what we see in this text this morning. He, he's telling Timothy, hey, if you want to be faithful until the end, you're not going to be popular. You might not be popular, but also, when has that ever mattered to God? Paul is he's reframing Timothy's perspective on life, and he's reframing his, his perspective on ministry in this text, and he's pleading with him to, to concern himself solely with the approval of God. Not the approval of others, but solely with the approval of God. And what a word for us this morning. What a word for me as, as a pastor. Pastors oftentimes struggle with this a great deal, this need for approval. They're either hyper-concerned with what people think of them, or they, they go to the other extreme and they revel in their ability to offend people and see that as a sign of faithfulness when reality is they're just a, a big jerk. We have to have this mindset of, of solely being concerned with the approval of God. And how do we structure our lives around that? That's what Paul is, is talking about in this text. His, his words really quite simple, even if they're not all that earth-shattering for us. He basically just says this, don't worry about others. Just focus on Jesus. Don't worry about others. Just focus on Jesus. And I don't know about you, but when I hear that, I say, well, that's a whole lot easier said than done, right? That's a basic statement, and I can wholeheartedly agree with that. Don't worry about others. And in this context, of course, we should actually love people, right? But don't be worried about what others think of you. Be instead focused on, on Jesus. But that's easier said than done. Thankfully, Paul, in this text, works through four commands for how we can be faithful how we can seek after the approval of God rather than the approval of those who are around us. And that's going to be our roadmap this morning, working our way through these four commands found in this text. Now, as we're doing that, I want us to just uh, make a, a quick note that as you're listening to this, I want you to, to look at it through two lenses. First, I want you to just understand that this is a, a very pastoral text. Remember, 2 Timothy is written from one pastor to another pastor concerned with how do you lead a church. And so part of this is, is focused on those who are in church leadership. 
those who are pastors, what they should be doing or how they should be looking at all of life. And, and so in this sense, in one sense, this is a very pastoral text in its focus. And yet at the same time that it's pastoral, it's also very personal for us. Not everyone here desires to be in a position of church leadership, whether that's a pastor, an elder, a ministry leader. And that's okay. That doesn't mean that this text doesn't have anything to say about our own search for approval in our lives. And so as we work our way through this text, I want you to to just look at this through two lenses. One is, what does this have to say about church leaders? What does this have to say about those who are in leadership? But also, what does this have to say about me personally? So those are the two lenses to look at this text through. I I won't mention that really again. Just wanted to bring that up here at the beginning. So if you have a Bible, uh, I invite you to open up to 2 Timothy chapter 14. Verse, uh, 2nd chapter, wow, 2nd Timothy 2 chapter, I said words matter and I'm struggling with words right now. 2nd Timothy chapter 2 verses 14 through 19. Let's, uh, let's uh, jump in. Remind them of these things and charge them before God, not to quarrel about words, which does no good, but only ruins the hearers. Do your best to present yourself to God as one approved, a worker who has no need to be ashamed, rightly handling the word of truth. But avoid irreverent babble, for it will lead people into more and more ungodliness, and their talk will spread like gangrene. Among them are Hymenaeus and Philetus, who have swerved from the truth, saying that the resurrection has already happened. They are upsetting the faith of some, but God's firm foundation stands bearing this seal. The Lord knows those who are his. And let everyone who names the name of the Lord depart from iniquity. Let's pray. Father, as, uh, as we approach your word this morning, we, we pause. We um, first want to just confess our own weakness and our desperate need. All too often to be liked. To have the approval of others. To live life with a smile of those that we can see rather than the smile of the God that we cannot. God, I ask that you would use this text to steal our hearts for faithfulness. Help us to be a people who pursue the endless joy of your approval, not the temporary high of the approval of the world. Bless this time in your word, Lord. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. All right, so I mentioned that, that Paul gives us four different commands for seeking God's approval. The first one found in verse 14. Paul writes this, Remind them of these things and charge them before God not to quarrel about words which does no good but only ruins the hearers. So what's Paul's concern here as he's uh, working his way through this explanation of how we are approved by God? Well, he's, he's telling Timothy that if he is going to be approved by God, then he needs to start by keeping the gospel the main thing. Keeping the gospel the main thing. Keeping the gospel your chief aim. That is the focus here. Don't get sidetracked by other things, by these quarrels about words, or literally word fights, but instead focus on these things. Of course, when we hear these things, we ask, well, what exactly does he mean when he says these things? It's what Paul has just said, right? Paul has just referred to something last week. We looked at verses 11 through 13, and Paul gives us this trustworthy saying. And whenever Paul says that this is a trustworthy saying, it's something that's worth keeping in our hearts, something that is worth 
continually bringing back to mind, to remind ourselves of, to remind ourselves of and to not lose sight of. What does he say? Starting in verse 11, the saying is trustworthy for if we have died with him, we will also live with him. If we endure, we will also reign with him. If we deny him, he also will deny us. If we are faithless, he remains faithful for he cannot deny himself. Last week, as we were working our way through this passage, we saw that this is a a list of promises that Jesus makes to his people and things that we are continually to bring to mind. There's four different promises. The first one is focused on the gospel itself. He says, if you have died with him, then you will also live with him. In other words, if you have died with Jesus to the old self in your conversion, this isn't talking about martyrdom. This is talking about conversion. If you have died with Jesus in your conversion, then you will have eternal life. That nothing will separate you from God if you place your trust in him. If you've turned to him and repentance and faith, if the old self is put to death, then life forever with him awaits, no matter what this life may bring. And as Paul is is telling Timothy to, to remind them, the church, Remind them of these things. He's saying, I don't want you to waste your time on other things with these word fights because that's absolutely useless. It's sideways energy. And instead, focus on keeping the gospel before yourself. Keep the gospel before your hearers. And we'll look at this more in a moment, but I think it's appropriate for us to try to unpack exactly what's taking place here that Paul is referring to when he talks about these word fights. What are these word fights? I think it's, if we look at the the context of 2 Timothy, uh, really two types of word fights are in mind here that Paul is referring to. First is is false teachers, and the second is unnecessary criticism of Paul. So the first is this, false teachers. Pretty obvious, verses 16 and 17, Paul is talking about this irreverent babble that is taking place with a false teacher named Hymenaeus. Another one, Philetus. Uh, Philetus actually isn't mentioned elsewhere in the Bible, so we don't know much about him. Hymenaeus is mentioned elsewhere in Scripture. A few years later, earlier, excuse me, as Paul is writing 1 Timothy, not 2 Timothy, Paul is, is writing about these people who have shipwrecked their faith. He talks about that in, in 1 Timothy chapter 1, verse 19. And notice how Paul describes Hymenaeus, this man who has shipwrecked his faith among whom are Hymenaeus and Alexander, whom I have handed over to Satan that they may learn not to blaspheme. So it doesn't give us a a, a lot of insight into what specifically the issue is, but apparently Hymenaeus and this guy Alexander, they have been promoting some sort of false teaching, this blasphemy. And so Paul, he's he's attempted to correct them. And and that has, has gone over very poorly. And so he cuts Hymenaeus out of the church. In, in other words, he hands them over to Satan with this hope that Hymenaeus will repent. Paul has already sparred with Hymenaeus. He's, he's corrected him. He's rebuked him. He's defended the gospel. And he's gotten to this point where he has now realized that any more time spent addressing Hymenaeus' concerns will just be irreverent babble. It will be useless chatter. It's, it's just going to be a, a word fight. So he tells Timothy, what I want you to do is just ignore him. 
I want you to ignore Hymenaeus. I want you to ignore his new friend Philetus. We don't know what happened to Alexander, but we want you to ignore all of their false teaching. In fact, if you do engage them without a sign of repentance from them, then what you're actually doing, whether you mean to or not, is you're giving them a platform. By engaging them, you're actually beginning to, to unintentionally validate their concerns by allowing people to hear what is being taken, what they're describing. And, and this is leading to the ruining of hearers. And Paul is, is, is saying to Timothy, if, if you want God's approval, that means you're going to have to say no to some things, some conversations, so that you can say yes to the most important thing. Don't waste your time in these endless circles of, of debate, just constantly spinning your wheels. Instead, use that time to remind people of the gospel. Keep the gospel the main thing. So that's one area that Paul is addressing when he talks about these word fights, this false teaching. The other area, I think, is this baseless criticism. Remember, Paul has been abandoned by churches and people as he is sitting in prison in Rome. All of these people that, that Paul was once close with, they now begin to disassociate with Paul. They begin to, to back away from him. They begin to see that, that Paul, because of his imprisonment, is actually someone that, that we shouldn't be around. That, in fact, Paul is to blame for his imprisonment. That this gospel and moderation crowd that we talked about about a month ago, they now think that this is Paul's personality that has landed him in prison more than anything else. Can you just imagine how much that hurt Paul? How much this would have been painful to Paul, that churches that he had planted, people that he's invested in, they've now turned their backs on him when the going gets tough. They're not just distancing themselves from him, but they're beginning to say things like, well, you know what, you reap what you sow, Paul. And if you were just a little kinder, if you were a little more like this, then maybe you wouldn't be in prison. In spite of this pain, Paul is, is telling Timothy, you know, your time is too valuable to waste with these baseless criticisms, no matter how much they may hurt. Keep the gospel the main thing. Keep the gospel as your chief aim in life. God doesn't want you to be exa exhausted from all of these sideways conversation, putting out all of these different fires that you can't focus on the gospel. If you're going to live a life that is approved by God, then start by focusing on the gospel. And if you're doing that, if that's your, your starting place, the foundation, it doesn't matter if you're a, a pastor or a pharmacy technician, whether you're a church leader, whether you're a librarian, if you are focused on the gospel first, you're well on your way to finding God's approval. Don't waste time with lesser things because the gospel is the main thing. He mentions a second command in verse, uh, in verse 15. Do your best to present yourself to God as one approved, a worker who has no need to be ashamed, rightly handling the word of truth. So the first thing is, is to keep the gospel the main thing. The second thing here is make pleasing God your life's highest priority. Make it your highest priority in life. 
Everything else is secondary. You will never regret this decision. You will never get to the end of your life and say, you know what? I wish I would have taken Paul's words here in 2 Timothy chapter 2, verse 15, a little less seriously. That I would have spent a little less time trying to seek God's approval. Make pleasing God your life's highest priority. A few weeks ago, I said this. I think it's worth repeating. As the people of God, a frown on the face of God should be our greatest dread and a smile on his face should be our greatest joy. And this is why Paul is urging Timothy to to do his best. He's not talking about working his way towards salvation. He's saying, don't go after this half-heartedly. Don't do this when it's just convenient. Chase after the approval of God with your life, all of your life, with this tireless zeal. Make pleasing God your life's highest priority. Of course, how does, how does one go about doing this? How does one go about seeking the approval of God? We, we can answer that question with a, a similar question. How does a, a person get approved to be a surgeon? How does someone get approved to be a surgeon? Do they just let the first 20 people to show up at the hospital each day perform surgery that day? No, of course not. There, there's a strenuous checklist that has to be met before someone is approved or allowed to perform surgery, right? Same thing for any number of vocations. In other words, there's this testing that is involved in order to be approved. And the same thing is true when it comes to God's approval as well. In the economy of God, these tests that come from God are oftentimes in the form of affliction. They're in the form of suffering and hardship. Paul writes basically this exact same thing as he's talking to the church in Thessalonica decades earlier. But though we had already, been, we had already suffered and been shamefully treated at Philippi, as you know, we had boldness in God to declare to you the gospel of God in the midst of much conflict. But just as we have been approved by God to be entrusted with the gospel, so we speak not to please man, but to please God who tests our hearts. Paul and Timothy, decades before, had gone through suffering and hardship while they were ministering in Philippi and then when they were ministering in Thessalonica. And their faithfulness in the midst of that hardship is why they are approved by God. They have walked through the test, walked through the affliction, and God is pleased with their faithfulness in the midst of those. And now, a long time has passed, and Paul is writing to Timothy about this suffering, and he says two things. First, Timothy, I want you to make your life's highest priority to be approved by God in any way and in every season. Do your best. But second, he he also says that when suffering comes, and and it will come, Timothy, that is the most particular time when you have an opportunity to honor Jesus, to bring a smile to his face with how you live to seek after his approval. No, no mistake, you are going to suffer in your life. Thomas Boston, a Puritan from the 1600s, 1700s, says this, God has only one son without sin, but no sons without a cross. And what he means by that is all of us will face suffering and affliction, a cross. And how we respond in the midst of suffering 
in the midst of affliction will go a long way to answering the question, is my life pleasing to God? In the midst of hardship and suffering, will you get bitter? Get disillusioned? Or will you follow the footsteps of your elder brother, Jesus? Joyfully remain faithful even while you bear a cross. This is what Paul has in mind when he talks about being a worker who has no need to be ashamed. When the call of the gospel cuts against the grain of our culture. When the gospel calls for self-denial rather than self-indulgence. When it calls for kindness rather than anger. When it calls for patient endurance rather than immediate vindication or gratification. All these things are a form of suffering for the sake of the gospel. Because if you didn't follow Jesus, you wouldn't have to worry about it. But that's a part of the cross of following Christ. And when you are faced with these moments, when the gospel cuts against the grain of culture, Paul is pleading with Timothy to choose the gospel over the world. Don't make a decision that chooses the world's way over the way of Jesus. If, if you are intent on pleasing God in any and every situation, that means even when it is involving hardship, be faithful. Seek God's approval and you will never be ashamed. Timothy, make pleasing God your life's highest priority. Now, at this point, Paul transitions to a specific example. We've, we've mentioned it a, a bit to this point. Uh, this false teaching of these two men, uh, Hymenaeus and Philetus. In verses 16 through 18, we catch our third command for a life approved by God, not the, a life approved by the world. It says this, But avoid irreverent babble, for it will lead people into more and more ungodliness, and their talk will spread like gangrene. Among them are Hymenaeus and Philetus, who have swerved from the truth, saying that the resurrection has already happened. They are upsetting the faith of son. So now Paul is, has returned to this topic of speech. Now he's, he's focused on this danger that comes with harmful words. And in doing so, he gives us a third command, and that is this. Don't entertain useless discussions. Don't entertain useless discussions. Another way of putting Paul's words here, maybe surprisingly for us, sometimes one of the most spiritual things that you can do is just ignore someone. There are so many voices that are vying for our attention. And so many of them are vain. So many of them bear false witness. So many of them are guilty of logical fallacies that drive me crazy. And they're frankly useless. You could spend an, a seeming eternity trying to be in the know on every hot topic. To be well informed about anything and everything and on many things. It's not only okay to not have an opinion, but it's actually wise to not try to waste time to have one. Now, let me, let me be very clear. That's not exactly what Paul is referring to in this text. Specifically, Paul is talking about irreverent babble or this useless discussion that comes with false teaching from Hymenaeus and Philetus. 
Even after they've been out, uh, he's been kicked out of the church, Hymenaeus is apparently still trying to find a way to, to worm himself into a, a position of influence in the church in Ephesus. Uh, if we want to know his, his particular heresy, uh, according to verse 18, he seems to be claiming that the resurrection has already happened in some degree. Likely what he means is that uh, it, it has happened spiritually, and now all of the promises of God will be fulfilled for us now. And, and honestly, this isn't too different than the health and wealth gospel, health and wealth heresy today that claims that God only wants you to be healthy, happy, wealthy, and, and God is the God of, of everything. And he, why wouldn't he want his, his children to have everything? And you can't help but catch the, the slap in the face to Paul here. Because here is Paul, and he's sitting in prison for his faith. And he's joyfully enduring suffering for the gospel out of this earnest desire to please Jesus until his dying breath. And meanwhile, Hymenaeus and Philetus are living high on the hog, saying, you know what, this is the life that God wants for you too. And Paul tells Timothy, I don't want you to be baited into entertaining them. Don't even give them a voice for their heresies. This is why Paul ends this previous verse with this focus, this emphasis for Timothy to, to be rightly handling the word of truth. Don't, don't divide, devote time to this heresy. Be focused instead on being faithful to the gospel. The same is true today. False teaching is alive and well in the world today as well. It's a little bit more insidious than it was in the first century. In our pluralistic culture, we're, we're, we're just bombarded with a thousand different ways to think about what God is life. There's the voice, uh, what he's like. The, the voice of the, the health and wealth gospel says that God just wants you to be happy, healthy, and wealthy. And that's his, his chief concern. There, there's the voice of what I like to call the American dream form of Christianity that says God would never ask you to do anything that is uncomfortable for you or that you disagree with. There are voices of those who have married the way of the lamb with the way of the, the donkey or, or, or of the elephant in politics. There's this voice of, of this Christless form of Christianity for centuries that, that conveniently says that the message of the gospel just so happens to align with what the culture wants and believes right now in this moment. And the list could go on and on and on and on. And Paul tells Timothy, I don't want you to entertain those heresies, that false teaching. Don't take the time. Don't take the energy for useless discussions. Instead, I want you to, to devote yourself to the word of truth. I think it's worth pointing out that all these useless discussions of our culture, they, they can go and do go a lot further than just false teaching. I, I mentioned a, a couple earlier, this idea, this, uh, this more all-encompassing term of, of useless discussions. The other day, I was, having a, I was having breakfast with Pastor Kurt, Pastor Shane, and I shared that one of my biggest struggles is cynicism. I'm a very cynical person. And I think part of that has to do with the fact that I'm, in a large part, I'm, a, I'm just a product of my generation. I think my generation is one of, if not the most cynical generations in human history. But it's not just 
my generation. It, it, I think it's, it's our culture as a whole. We breathe in and out cynicism. We complain. We grumble. We slander. It's, it's like second nature all too often. Even in the church, we, we can share a bit too much info about someone and their embarrassing situation under the guise of a prayer request. And really, it's just a form of gossip. And, and all too often, this is just second nature. We, we don't even give this a, a second thought in, in our lives. We don't give a, a second thought to our, our tongues. I don't know if there's a greater way to please the Lord Jesus than to do what Paul is asking Timothy to do here, to not entertain useless discussions. And the reason why we see in the following verse, it's because they're a cancer to the church. That's true of false teaching. It's a cancer to the church. It's true of other forms of useless discussion as well. Paul uses this incredibly revolting image here of this damage of false teaching that comes from lax tongues. And he literally says that this type of talk, it, it takes root in or it takes pasture in people like gangrene. It sinks deep down into the bone and it brings rot and decay and death. And so he says, Timothy, I want you to stay far away from it. If you want to seek God's approval, then don't entertain useless discussions. What hope do we have? What hope do we have if useless discussions, this irreverent babble is, is all around us. It's pressing in on every side. Paul gives us this word of assurance in verse 19. He says this, but God and his firm foundation stands, bearing this seal. The Lord knows those who are his. Let everyone who names the name of the Lord depart from iniquity. Now, this is a, a unique way to end this passage, so let me unpack Paul's train of thought here. The question I, I just asked, uh, somewhat helpful in, in framing what Paul is doing here, what hope do we have if, if irreverent babble is all around us, especially in the church, especially in our own hearts? Um, seems to be the case in Ephesus. So let me just paint a bit of the context here. Paul plants this church in Ephesus. And after he's planted this church in Ephesus, he ministers there for about three years. After serving there, he goes on and he begins to plant other churches in Asia, Asia Minor and in Macedonia. And this church in Ephesus is a key part of Paul's missionary strategy. It's the largest city in, in Western Asia Minor. And, and a number of other churches are planted from this church in Ephesus. The last time that Paul sees the, the church leaders of Ephesus, he gives them this warning in Acts chapter 20. We're not going to read it, but Acts chapter 20 is this warning about how someday false teaching is going to come, that there's wolves that are waiting to attack, not just from without, but from within. That because this is such an important church, that everyone wants a piece of it. And sure enough, after Paul, after Paul uh, warns the church, he, he's arrested He's sent to Rome, and this is what we see in Acts chapter 28, the end of Acts. After a few years, Paul is released from his house arrest, and he begins to, to travel. And he sends Timothy to Ephesus to kind of address some of the, the situation that's taking place there. And a short time later, Paul is arrested again. And this time, his hope to, to be released, it, it, it doesn't look as good 
Things don't look as good in Ephesus either at this time, and persecutions ramping up all across the Roman Empire. And church after church after church is beginning to disassociate itself with Paul and people like Hymenaeus and people like Philetus. They begin to, to point to Paul's imprisonment. And they begin to see that as proof positive that he, Paul, is a false teacher. Because if he wasn't a false teacher, then he wouldn't be in prison. And all of these churches, they begin to to cut ties with the Apostle Paul. And this entire time, while this is happening out there, Paul is sitting in prison. He's chained as a criminal. And it seems like he's watching his life work crumble all around him. Decades of ministry is just starting to fall down all around him. Death is right around the corner for Paul in this moment. All of the good work that he has done, it seems like it's just gone. And how does Paul respond? But God's firm foundation stands. God's firm foundation stands. Paul states his confidence that God is not done, that even if churches are defecting and turning their backs on the gospel, that Jesus has promised that he will build his church and the gates of Hades will not overcome it. And in spite of Paul's circumstances, he is confident in that truth, that God's firm foundation, that the church, the bedrock of the church still stands. Next, he says, bearing this seal, he has this, this confidence that it isn't just the endurance of the church, but, but also that this is the church's seal. Ancient seal is a common way to, to identify ownership. Uh, basically another way of, of kind of like our signatures today to prove authenticity here. In this context, what Paul is saying is that there are still some in the church. There are still some churches that are genuine in spite of everything falling down all around me. And he says that they bear these two seals says this, the Lord knows those who are his. Now, Paul refers back to the Old Testament. He, he goes back to the Old Testament and says, you know what? This is one of the refuges that I have found as I am facing all of this affliction and suffering. It's found from Numbers chapter 16. And all of us are familiar with Numbers chapter 16, right? No, of course. I'll, I'll just, I'll give you a, a brief reminder Numbers chapter 16, the people of Israel are in the wilderness. Moses is the leader of the people of Israel. And at this time, some of the people who are under his leadership, in positions of authority, but not in Moses' position of authority, they begin to become disillusioned with Moses. They become disillusioned with Aaron as well. And they start to say, well, you know what, Moses, you have, you have too much power. And you've let that go to your head. And we deserve some of that power too. In fact, they they spiritualize this, actually, in Numbers chapter 16. And they say, you know what? Aren't we all God's people? Shouldn't we all be in a position of leadership, really? And Moses is left at his his wit's end. And and so he says before the entire congregation, you know what? The Lord knows those who are his. The Lord knows those who are his. Let him decide who's in the right and who's in the wrong. That's exactly what God does. Let me read to you Numbers chapter 16. We're going to start in verse 28. And Moses said, Hereby you shall know that the Lord has sent me to do all these works, and that it has not been of my own accord. If these men die as men die, or if they are visited by the fate of all mankind, then the Lord has not sent me. But 
If the Lord creates something new and the ground opens its mouth and swallows them up with all that belongs to them and they go down alive into Sheol, then you shall know that these men have despised the Lord. And as soon as he had finished speaking all these words, the ground under them split apart and the earth opened its mouth and swallowed them up with their households and all the people who belonged to Korah and all their goods. So that they and all that belonged to them went down alive into Sheol and the earth closed up over them and they perished from the midst of the assembly and all Israel who were around them fled at their cry for they said, lest the earth swallow us up. And fire came down out, of, out from the Lord and consumed the 250 men offering the incense. Wow. This is a well-known story to the first century church, to to the Jewish people. It's kind of on the same level as Noah's Ark is for us today. And so when Paul says, the Lord knows those who are his, he's basically saying, I know that there are people who are opposed to me. And I know that it may look like they are going to end up on top because I'm in prison right now and they are running free. They're gathering more and more and more followers while my influence is beginning to wane. But you know what? The Lord knows those who are his. And I have a clear conscience before God and I'm comfortable letting him take care of determining who is the one who is right. The Lord knows those who are his. Isn't that such a a word of comfort for us? That when we are faced with hardship and affliction, it isn't the fact that we know the Lord that, that holds us to him, but the fact that he knows us is what keeps us secure. And we can rest with complete confidence in that promise. But Moses, he gives another command here. Not just Moses, Paul as he's talking about this story of of Moses, it's this one of assurance, and it's simply this. When we're faced with opposition, when you're faced with opposition, remember that God hasn't forgotten you. That God hasn't forgotten you, just like he hadn't forgotten Paul. That he hadn't forgotten Moses. When you're faced with hardship and opposition, remember that God has not forgotten you. It is so easy to doubt God's presence, to doubt whether God is intentionally remaining silent. I don't think it's too much to to wonder if Paul is wrestling through these very questions and thoughts himself. And yet he doesn't entertain them, but instead runs to the promises of Scripture. How do we know that we are those that the Lord knows? Paul gives us the answer in this last bit of the passage. Let everyone who names the name of the Lord depart from iniquity. Rather than quoting from the Old Testament, Paul uses all of these themes that are found in the Old Testament, ties them together here, and, uh, and, and basically just is trying to make another point. You know what? If you're the Lord's, so if you've called upon the name of the Lord, then, then you'll be someone who repents, but whose life is a life of repentance. The Lord knows those who are his, and yet at the same time, those who call upon the name of the Lord will depart from wicked doing, that they will depart from evil in their lives, that they will look at their lives trying to find any way that they can align their life more fully with the way of Jesus. If you want to be faithful, if you want to seek the approval of Jesus, Don't worry about others. Just focus on Jesus. Make pleasing God your 
highest priority. Keep the gospel front and center in your life. Don't waste time entertaining useless discussions. I had a seminary professor. He told me this story. I have no idea if it's true or not. Um, I don't think it is because just a a little bit of of pastor speak for you. Anytime a pastor says a story is told, that usually means it's made up. Okay? And that's how he starts. A story is told. But he tells a story of, uh, and it goes like this. A a young violinist um, a number of years ago in London uh, was, was really, really good, um, and, and he was this excellent musician. Everyone wanted to hear him, and yet he was deathly afraid of crowds. And so this urban legend began to develop around him, that he was so good, but he would only play at people's houses in front of small groups of people. And of course, as you can imagine, that this led to, to some, some forms of jealousy, that there's no way that this man can be really that good if no one, none of us have really ever heard him. And he began to get blasted by the critics in the press. And it got to this point where it was, it was just so extreme, so severe that he finally, you know, said, all right, I'm going to have one concert. And so there, he goes to this concert hall and the place is packed. And, and in the first three rows, just filled with critics that are ready to just rake him over the coals. And he comes out with his violin, doesn't come out with a music stand. He just comes out with his violin and he sits on a stool. And he plays without music for an hour and a half. And after 10 minutes, every single one of those critics puts their paper down, their pens down, that they were ready to just write all of these things about him. And they just enjoy because he really is that good. And the time goes by way too quickly. After an hour and a half, here's this man. He gets done and everyone knows it's the end of the concert and just the place goes wild, standing ovation to him. And he just sits there. It doesn't even look like he acknowledges or knows that people are clapping for him. He's just looking at the crowd. He's, he's looking out in the crowd. It's very clear that he's looking for something or, or, or someone. And eventually, he clearly finds that because you can see a wave of relief on his face, and then he acknowledges the crowd. Afterward, backstage, the, the uh, critics are, are talking to him and actually bring this up and say, you know what, you were actually better than we ever thought you could be. But we have to ask you, when you got done, it, it seemed like you didn't even acknowledge that, there were other, that people were clapping for you. What was going on there? And he said, you know what? Right before I came on stage, I heard that my master teacher, the person who taught me everything that I know, was going to be in attendance. And I spent that entire hour and a half while I was playing looking for him. And I couldn't find him. And when I at last got done, I scanned the crowd and I finally found him. And I saw him up in the balcony. And he was standing there with a huge smile on his face. And he was clapping. And I realized in that moment, if I have made him happy, then I must have done something right. And that's what it looks like to seek after the approval of God, not the approval of others. Whether it's roaring crowds or whether it is hostile opposition, to not be concerned anyone's approval but Jesus's. If we could be a church like that, if we could be people like that, our lives would be changed. This world would be changed. Don't worry about others. Just focus on Jesus.
Let's pray. God, it is so easy to be concerned with the response of those that we do see, that we do hear, that we can lose sight of you. Help us, God, to be a people who remind them of these things and start by reminding ourselves to regularly, continually remind ourselves of the truth of the gospel, to seek your favor and approval, to seek a smile on your face and no one else's. Help us, Jesus. It's in your name we pray. Amen. This has been a presentation of Crosswinds Church. More of Pastor Jordan's sermons can be found online at crosswinds.tv. Thanks for being with us, and may God continue to enrich your life.